Hello, this is Chaos Radio International, the English language podcast of the Chaos Computer Club. And this is the fourth episode and the fourth interview of the 22nd Chaos Communication Congress. And it's going to be the last one, as the Congress has ended today. We're about to talk to Jacob Applebaum, who also gave two talks at the Congress. So, Chaos Communication Congress is over, but it's going to return next year. So, let's listen to this interview. My name is Tim Pretlove. Here, here we are, <coughs> switching back to English, switching back to English, because we've been talking <coughs> all night already, and we're ending this day with this interview, I say hello to Jacob, hello Jacob, yeah. hey, and um, yeah, <coughs> uh, it was a long way to get you to Berlin, I must say, um, we tried it last year already, and then you couldn't come. And but we sort of stayed in, in contact, which was for me very personal experience because it was really a, a very digital acquaintance, just getting in contact via instant messaging and a bit of email. No, did we ever send email? I have no clue. I think there was maybe one or two. Yeah, but it wasn't really that important. It was really real time, real time discussion in a way. And so you couldn't really come. And uh, but you made it this year, and in between has been quite a lot of personal experiences on your side. Um, something that you have already uh, also talked about at the congress. But uh, I'd like to start with the the other talk you you gave today on um, a technical issue, which was disk encryption, um, which was the talk you were supposed to have um, last year. So maybe we can just dive in, in your personal technical history because well you are a hacker obviously but where did it all start when where did you first get into contact with computers I think the the first time I really got into computers was when I was uh, I don't know in grade school I I hacked uh, Oregon Trail Some of the other kids were like playing word games with passwords that you could have so you could beat it during the lunch hour. And so eventually I was able to social engineer from one of the kids that the password was boom. And if you typed in boom, you could beat Oregon Trail and not die from dysentery <laughs> within the lunch hour. What, what is Oregon Trail? Can you explain uh, that? Oregon Trail is sort of this game where you have to like race across... Uh, um, uh, part of the uh, United States so that you can, uh, you know, bring your family and set up a new uh, life, you know, the Oregon Trail. And uh, along the way you have oxen and you have to float them across the river and it's just this really silly two-dimensional video game that uh, early Macintosh and Okay. It's at the same time as learning to program uh, on the old Apple machines in class. And so Apple computer was your first machine? Yeah. Apple II? Yeah. Back in when? Oh, I don't know, uh, 90, some early 90s, the early 90s. Okay. So, 
Um, your, your talk was uh, on on disk disk encryption technologies for operating systems, right? Yeah, it was uh, basically a discussion about uh, different uh, disk disk encryption um, uh, methods. Like, so we had FreeBSD, OpenBSD, NetBSD, uh, macOS 10, and Linux, and then different implementations that solve different problems. And I talked about uh, a, f a generic framework that I had uh, come up with in order to solve some interesting legal problems that uh, we face today. Okay, and well, what, did you have any reactions? Did you get reactions at the Congress? Yeah, it's uh, it's one thing that's really nice about the Congress, I think, is that I said, you know, are there any Apple developers in the house before I ripped into Apple Computer for some mistakes that they made? Nobody raised their hand. Um, but then I talked a little bit about um, some other systems and, you know, how many OpenBSD developers are here? And there are some OpenBSD developers. And then how many NetBSD developers? And then one of the people that had worked somehow on this disk crypto, like, you know, came and talked to me afterwards. And the guy that wrote the rubber hose file system, very nice guy. He's like, you know, I, I disagree with a lot of the things that you're saying. I think the rubber hose file system has, has some good uses. But it was just great because here I am giving this talk. And the question and answer, these are these people who've written the software, who thought about the threat models. And it's just really great to really be right there with all of the people that are doing these things. Which is very different than other conferences. Mm -hmm. It's excellent. So there are lots of, especially open source developers and also operating system hackers around the Congress, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so what you can, well, what, what you consider yourself and what you're doing, especially what you're doing with computers, being uh, a, a hacker, I mean, I said it, what, what do you associate with that term? That's, that's a question I more or less uh, well, sent to anybody who, who I was uh, interviewing in the last days. So what's your standpoint on the term and how do you evaluate that? I think that I just... Um I consider people who think creatively about any subject, in depth on a subject, I think that anybody can be a hacker of something. So like people that build their own cameras, like people that build pinhole cameras out of digital cameras, they're like photography hackers and the people that are working on the file systems are file system hackers, the crypto hackers for the crypto file systems. and. I think that if I were to consider myself something, I'm in a lot of ways like a, a social like people hacker. I figure out like um, like when going into Iraq or going into um, Houston or New Orleans post Katrina, I figured out like the systems that were in place and worked with those systems and against those systems in a way that could be useful so that we could actually accomplish things. And I think that it's not necessarily about technology, but certainly I when I'm doing network security or uh, programming or code editing or something like this, that's uh, hacking of that particular type in its own right. So, so where are you originally from? I mean, what's your birthplace? Where, where did you grow up? Um, well, I'm originally from a town near San Francisco in California, which is, of course, in the free states of America. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, I spend most of my time now in San Francisco when I'm not traveling. And although lately I've been traveling a lot and I'm living in Toronto and spending in the last uh, couple of months, I've spent it in Europe, in Vienna and London and Brussels and Wiesbaden. And now I'm in Berlin and soon I'll go back to Toronto. Yeah, you have been uh, around a lot in the last 12 months. So <clears throat> there was a certain reason that you um, couldn't come to the last Congress. You have been talking about this as well. Um, could you say something about this? Yeah, sure. Um, well, the last Congress, I was very excited to come. I was really hoping that I could you know, have it all work out. I had my talk all written and 
everything was just going really well in terms of planning, but uh, some very bad things popped up. And I talked about it uh, my first lecture, my personal experiences traveling um, for the last year. And the main the main cause of all of my traveling is basically like uh, this very extreme interpersonal journey as well as like an internal journey as well as an actual physical journey and um, it all started basically when some people murdered my father in San Francisco and I pretty much had to leave town for safety reasons but also sanity reasons and when I left town I basically didn't come back really very seriously and stably in San Francisco for basically a year and just wandered the whole planet for a year so so one of your first, or was it just, was already the first uh, destination you were heading to Iraq? That's what you were visiting, and when was it, in March? Um, I was in uh, early, early uh, 2005, I went to Toronto, and I stayed in Toronto for several months, and then I went to visit um, someone I had promised I would visit in Iraq, and I also went to visit some people in Turkey, and in Prague, and a couple of other places. And so in April, I went um, from Istanbul after spending a couple of weeks there and I went into Iraq. And how long have you been there? Uh, I was there for about two weeks. Two weeks. And when did you, so you, you entered Iraq from the Turkey side, from the north. Right. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> what do they say about Turkey and Europe? It's, it's like pot, it's sort of the gateway. <laughs> so uh, I flew from Vienna to Istanbul, and I spent a couple of weeks in Istanbul just kind of orienting myself to the the radically different culture. I mean, I'd traveled uh, in the Middle East before, um, but I had not traveled into Iraq, obviously, and I had not traveled in Turkey. And so I, I had some friends in Turkey, and I spent a bunch of time with some Turks and learned some of the phrases and basically just got a feel for what people in this region thought of Iraq, and everyone thought I was going to get my head cut off and surely I would die, and the previous stamp uh, from visiting Israel was not going to do me very much good, especially when they saw it was in an American passport with a Jewish last name. And so... After some time, I decided that even though everyone was pretty sure that I was going to get my head cut off, I I got on a plane from Istanbul and I flew to the city of Diyarbakir. And when I got to Diyarbakir, there's a very funny uh, little um, Kurdish boy holding a sign with my name on it. And um, I thought, that, that boy is too young to be the driver that's taking me into Iraq. And he brought me into a room and he just sat me down there. He's like, you have to wait. Would you like some chai? And of course, this is all in the international uh, mime language because we didn't speak any languages in common. And uh, although my Turkish was uh, good enough that I could say, yes, I'd like some chai, <laughs> it wasn't much better than that. And eventually a driver showed up and I asked him if he was the name of the driver that I had been expecting. And he said, no, I'm not that driver. And I said, oh, I, I believe it went something along the lines of Mohammed. No, not Mohammed. Mohammed? No, not Mohammed. <laughs> Mohammed's coming. Mohammed no come. Oh, excellent. Zachau? He says, Zachau. All right, let's roll. And so we got into his uh, his uh, taxi cab, which was basically just a nice uh, Saab car with no markings on it, and off we went to Iraq. Well, the, the Kurdish area can still be considered... Well, safe in quotes uh, compared to the rest of the country, but I, I guess you didn't really feel very um, secure, I guess. 
Oh, on that a, trip. It was it was actually um, it was it was really strange flying um, Istanbul uh, to Diyarbakir actually because there was a riot on the airplane, which uh, <laughs> basically uh, what. <laughs> There were, there were three really weird things at the airport. The first thing was that it took forever to actually uh, find out where the gate was. And when we finally found out where the gate was, they put us on like uh, a tram and made us wait. And while we were waiting, there were all these Americans standing around who were very clearly working for some government agency or they were mercenaries or something. They had like, you know, the multifunctional watches and they were built like they were football players and just overall like very strange. And I just kind of like, um, I, I have this, this travel technique where when I'm traveling, since I'm wearing mostly all black anyway, I just don't speak English. I just speak German to people and say like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, tut mir leid, ich komme aus Deutschland, ich bin kein Amerikaner, something, something like this. And, uh, and, uh, and um, in this case, I saw them and like, I had like a, my like fake, thick, heavy German accent. And I asked the guy about his iPod and then I said, oh, so what are you doing here? And, you know, why are you coming? And are you going um, this place? And, and eventually I just, in talking to them, said like, so what do you guys do for the DOD? Um, which, if, for those of you at home, is the Department of Defense. And uh, the guy said, the DOD? I don't know what the DOD is. <laughs> and, uh, Americans who don't know what the DOD is. Yeah. Especially Americans traveling to, uh, you know, uh, southeastern Turkey, which means, of course, they're going into Iraq. And so the guys the guys that I was talking to were like, oh, no, you know, I'm not. And the guy the, with the big watch is built like uh, this football player. is like, my name's Chad, and I'm not with the DOD. I'm with the G-O-D. So the apparently they were Christian uh, missionaries. Uh, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> They're with the G-O-D. Yeah. Ooh. And so on the airplane when we're flying, um, when we're flying, uh, uh, First of all, we just don't even take off for a really long time. And we're not even on the airline we're supposed to be on. Everyone's wearing different outfits. The whole plane is just, just some other company. Like, no one has ever bought a ticket with this airline. We don't know why we're on this plane. And it turns out that the other plane just never showed up. And so the airline company had to rent an entirely different airline company's uh, airplane and stewardesses. And then they were taking too long uh, getting off the ground. So people started getting out of their seats and running to the cockpit, screaming, like at full force, swinging their arms, knocking over stewardesses. And it was just, uh, it was crazy because when they, when they first started doing this, they eventually calmed everybody down. So then they start taking off on the runway. And as the plane is actually starting to take off, all the members of the GOD squad that are sitting around start getting really tense. And they're really like, you know, you, you can tell they've never been in any place that was even remotely dangerous. And they couldn't have been with the Department of Defense because they were just so uptight and so obviously not not together. So they were really with the G.O.D. department? I think it's 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 probable that they were. They, but they had white socks. So I'm, I'm inclined to believe that they were feds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Spot the feds. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but so as we're taking off on this, uh, on, on this airplane, and as the plane is literally getting air, and then the inclination, uh, you know, of everyone is to sit down and hold on, there are people that start getting up and screaming and running at the cockpit. And so all the other Americans on the flight are like... Um, 
are basically like, what? What's going on? You know, like, this is not normal. Like, you can't run at the cockpit. And of course, they're thinking this is like, you know, America and like people running at the cockpit. Soon there'll be gunshots going off or, you know, this is like terrorism or something. Yeah, they're scared. Yeah, they were extremely scared. And it was, it was... It was quite funny as I was talking to um, this one stewardess who was kind of like standing nearby in German. And while I was talking to her, someone tried to sell me fa- like fake Levi's and a fake Rolex. Like, <laughs> 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 this is like, you should come to my shop in Istanbul when you're on your way back. It's underneath here and you come by and we can get you any kind of Levi's you like. And Okay. Yeah. They're very good at selling. So, <clears throat> so then you entered uh, Iraq and you... Well, if I understood it right, you were just moving from city to city, more or less. Yeah. Um, hit other places. Did you uh, leave Kurdistan, the Kurdistan region? Uh, the closest I got to leaving Kurdistan was when I was going... Technically, it was not leaving Kurdistan. I went to the border of Iran, which is the, the mountains of Akhmadawa, which is basically this extremely beautiful mountain with a huge waterfall. A really powerful verse of the Quran, uh, many verses of the Quran written like above the waterfall, and that's about as far away from uh, like uh, the like Erbil and the uh, Kirkuk and these different places that I got. But I didn't go uh, further south, like to Baghdad or any of these places, because when I tried to, uh, the people I was traveling with told me that there's no way that I would make it from uh, Erbil to Baghdad. They were absolutely sure that we would get killed, so we didn't do that. Okay, so what what did you see? What did you well? You've been talking to people, I guess, and what what did you see? What was your impressions? Well, well my first uh, my first impression was actually uh, when we were driving from Diyarbakir to Zakau. Um, I sh- the, fr- the the first time I thought surely I was done for was along the way. There's um there's a city, um, very small. I believe it's called like Sipoli. Um, I forget the name exactly. Um, was where the taxi driver, who wasn't my taxi driver in the first place, who it turns out later, I guess he's like the cousin or the brother of the driver. Um, we stop at this town in, in the middle of the night, and there's just sort of like a room on the side of the road that's lit up, and there's just like eight men standing around in this room. And I'm thinking like, oh, I didn't even make it to Iraq, and here I may get my head cut off. And, uh, <laughs> and sure enough nothing actually happens but this other taxi cab pulls up and it's like something out of a really awful movie the guy pulls up he hits the brakes and when he hits the brakes all of a sudden the inside of his cab starts glowing with like these big blue like leds and there's like dice like a like a like a heart and a teddy bear hanging in the window and there's like frills around the lining of the cab and on the front where the windshield wiper uh, fluid comes out um, the, to spray down the windows, they have blinking LEDs also. <laughs> and the whole car is like glowing with all these different lights. <laughs> and the thing is, is that it's like, a, it's like a car from the 70s that's been retrofit. Like, I don't even think it had the power system for these lights. And like, you know, like just totally like rigged it all up, shag carpets on the inside and everything. This guy pulls up. He's like, Zakao, Zakao. And so I got in his cab. <laughs> so, so, so you get to that place, got to that place in that pimped up taxi. Yeah, right? basically, basically, yeah. It was like, it was like, it was my ride, man. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I tried to dial into Iraq to let my friends know that I was coming. And um, they, they knew that roughly when I was coming because I called from, from a payphone in, in Istanbul. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't um, reach them after that. So they had no idea if my plane had landed, if I had been in the taxi. And it was a very long drive along um, the border of uh, Syria. 
inside Turkey into Iraq. And during the drive, there's all sorts of like checkpoints, and there's it's like a, something out of Brazil. They have these guys that are dressed like almost like road cones, with like on the outside of their coat this sort of like plastic reflective lining. So you can, it's like if you if you were a sniper or something, you just need to shoot in between the plastic lines, so you know exactly you're getting center mass. I don't know what the the point of that the military uh, camouflage is, but. They'd come out with their machine guns and like rifle and put them into the car and, and you have to give them your passport while you're driving there. Eventually, um, that stopped and we were very close to Iraq and it was very early in the morning and I still had not reached my friends because the cell phones of everyone around, um, they, they didn't dial into Iraq. You couldn't call anywhere. And so I was basically driving to this border and I had no way of contacting the people that I was reaching uh, or supposed to be meeting at the border. A friend of mine, well, once writ once wrote in his in his blog that a, a good way to to find about find out about uh, a culture and a society is by looking at the cabling. Um, uh, what what was your experience with uh, technology? I mean, usually if we think at Iraq, well, we may may think about deserts and, 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 and you know all these old things but what what is the situation in terms of technology and technological development well um to give you an idea of say the, the border um on the turkish iraq border in uh Zakau, they had uh some windows machines basically running that they would enter information into i tried to like shoulder surf that and it wasn't very effective they turned the monitor away from me But uh, they basically just had like old computers from the mid 90s. Um, once I traveled further inside, um, it depends on who you're around. But obviously, like if you were with the American military, they're going to have uh, sufficiently uh, advanced computing power. But most of the uh, Arab men and Kurdish men that I met um, that were engineers, uh, they had gotten computer science degrees, like learning how to program on like Windows 3.1 and in the 21st century so very not very good um but i mean the the level of mathematics um if you go to university there you progress pretty far i mean on the new iraqi money actually instead of having like um symbols of the occult like on the american money like the uh, pyramid eye they have uh, mathematical formulas and like the people that had come up with this and their face like honoring people of science and um But the cabling there, this is actually quite interesting. Uh, it's like a rat's nest. The Every street corner, everywhere you look, I don't even think they have maps of the cables. I think that whenever there's a problem with the cable, they just put another one on top of the other cables that are already there. <laughs> And then there's like, um, I have some photos that are just, it's like a crazy cobweb, spider webs of just cables everywhere. You can't even see the sky in some of the photos because there's so many phone cables and electrical cables and everything. Well, uh, <clears throat> you're now touching a very interesting part about you. I think um, you are a photographer. You're taking lots of photographs. And during your second talk uh, on this Iraq experiences, the, you showed quite a lot of photos. Um, is this the, the you're living in a way? Are you... Uh, I do uh, I do sell uh, some of my photographs, but I have sort of an unusual way of doing it. Basically, all my photographs, I put them on either Flickr or I put them on the internet other places under the Creative Commons, um, and I allow commercial use of the photographs um, without even having to pay me for it. 
um, and it's Creative Commons uh, share alike by attribution and commercial or non-commercial, depending on uh, what the person who I photograph or the people I photograph feel uh, is appropriate. And um, people, um, when I was traveling in New Orleans, uh, newspapers contacted me, nonprofits contacted me. Some people didn't contact me and they just take the images. Um, but lots of places would offer me, uh, like, you know, we printed your photo and, you know, this page five of our newspaper, here's $150 as a thank you even though they didn't have to. Um, and other, other places, uh, Scientific American recently contacted me just looking at the photographs that I post, posted online and they offered me, you know, for one photograph, we'll pay you N number of hundreds of dollars for each time we need this one-time use. So even though the Creative Commons would allow them to use it for free, just the, the way that it, it already works, people uh, still pay you for your photographs. So. Okay, it's interesting. So, but let's say in Iraq for a moment. Um, so, what what did you photograph in in Iraq? What 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 kind of atmosphere did you try to capture, and what like, what was the atmosphere that you were bumping into there? Um, well, for the most part, I just photographed everything that I was around. I did some documentation photography, uh, documentary photography of people uh, setting up um, a VSAT um, for a voting station where I documented step by step every single thing you need to do. And then I also wrote about every th single step that was going on, what this piece of equipment was. And here's the Iraqi engineer using this to, to find the azimuth. And here's the Iraqi engineer calibrating the satellite. And these people had been trained from basically not knowing anything to becoming like TCPIP uh, networking, uh, you know, geniuses. They're like really, really smart and being able to figure out all sorts of things. And so we can just go out into the desert, get online and have some, you know, have a firewall and have a VoIP connection and in the middle of the desert just making phone calls. and With satellite connections. With satellite connections. Did this work well? It, it does. It has a little bit of a lag, but... Uh -huh. how, how did you get in contact with these people? Well, the original way that I got in contact with these particular people I went out to set that VSAT up with was through uh, an, a friend of mine who worked uh, at a nonprofit that I worked at. Uh, and he left his job, and I ended up taking over a position very similar to his. And uh, I promised him when we were talking online, instant messaging back and forth, promised I would come and visit him in Iraq and uh, I'm I believe the only friend that ever did come and visit him in Iraq because when when I ended up leaving Iraq we actually all left together so and I don't think they've been back to Iraq since so so <clears throat> you already mentioned um, um, New Orleans um, but what well let's just close the Iraq, Iraq chapter first maybe that's um, good um, when you you left love like after two weeks mm -hmm. so in in the end what what was left of that that trip I mean was what what was your impression of the situation there what what uh, well I did that was mentioning I did uh, well there were a couple of significant events but uh, one of the main things while I was there that was really important to me was that I started interviewing the people that I was spending time with I started asking them a lot of questions, and I start, I put on my blog, like, is there anything you'd like to ask a, an Iraqi citizen? Is there anything you'd like to ask a, a Sunni Arab male? Um, and people, a lot of people submitted really asinine questions, like, is the price of gas more expensive now or before? 
uh, the war. Stuff like that's not really, uh, to me, that's not really interesting. Um, they they answered them anyway. Um, but there were people that asked some some other really good questions that like, you know, what is it like living day to day knowing that you could be killed at any moment? Like, how does that affect you? And and it, it really it touched me in a lot of uh, you know in a really deep way to actually have these conversations with people where they would open up and say something like, well, every day when I leave my house. I kiss my wife goodbye because there's a very good chance that it will be the last time I ever see them. Or, um, you know, I, uh, I wish that I could have children, you know, before I die. Like, these kinds of, like, things. But at the same time, they're also very, help uh, like, very, like, uh, they're, like, helpful and hopeful and resilient. And no matter how bad it was, they just, they want it to get better. And they're willing to work towards it to get better. Um, and just, like, uh just talking with these people on a daily basis, realizing what every world, you know, anyone who travels around the world knows. When you go somewhere, you realize people are just like the, pe the people you come you come from. I mean, they might be Muslims uh, in Iraq, whereas where I'm from in San Francisco, there, there are some Muslims, there's uh, some Jews, some Christians, some Satanists, you know, some atheists, whatever. But overall, they're people. They have families. They have they have dogs. They have cats. They have interests. They care about the world, and generally, they want to make it a better, livable place. So it's really intense to be able to to sit down and talk with people who basically are forced to sit in their country. And the Iraqi people that I that I spent time with, none of them can actually leave Iraq, with the exception of going to I think like one country in southeastern Asia. Uh, and I think I want to say they can go to Syria or to Jordan. I'm not sure which one, but other than that, they're not actually, their passports will get them thrown out of any other country they try to travel to. And so they can't even escape from the bloodbath that is their country, essentially. So even if they had the means to get out, they basically are forced to stay. It's like a big, huge prison hell for most of these people. And so spending this time with them is really eye-opening realizing like especially perspective wise like how acute this suffering was and how in a lot of ways we like to pretend like bad things we will never let those bad things happen again like in america we have this you know we would never let uh world war ii happen the way that it did again we, we would stop this injustice uh the next time you know it were to rear its ugly head it's like of course like that's not the case and it's happening all the time and iraq is just another example of this type of injustice it's not necessarily the same scale but it's the same type of injustice and it really opened my eyes to something that might be obvious to other people, but it also really opened my heart in a way that, I, I mean, I feel really connected to these people. When I talk to them to this day, I, I, I can't brush it off. I can't pretend like it's not happening. I can't, you know, go about my daily life like so many other people in America seem to do. So, pretty intense trip there, so... Um, so let's leave Iraq. 
When, what, so, what, just to make sure, we're in, in time, where are we now? We're like in June, July? Uh, at this point, when I left Iraq, it was May. May, okay. And you get back to San Francisco, I guess. I went to Toronto first, and uh, I spent a couple of days in Toronto, and then I... I made uh, the decision to go back to see my friend's wedding, um, and that was um, early May. And then I was back in San Francisco for quite some time uh, through the summer, um, working as a programmer and taking care of uh, some business in making preparations possibly to move to Toronto. Uh, so it was. And then came in the hurricane season and the Caribbean Sea, and. Uh then the Katrina hurricane hit New Orleans, um, which was well reported all over the world. Um, by the time I, I, I was personally following the news quite intensively, I don't really know why. Um, it was just like I had I had the time and was sort of uh, grabbing my attention for some reason. I mean, there's always shit going on, but this was sort of special. And I was also following your blog by then. We've been talking here and then. And, well, then you mentioned that you would move down to Houston to this uh, dome. What was the name of the dome again? What was the special name? Um, that one was the Astrodome. The Astrodome, right. Where they had all these refu refugees from New Orleans. Uh, but they don't like to be called refugees because they're American citizens. Okay, so what's the correct name then? Uh, they wanted to be called either displaced persons or just normal citizens in need of help, but certainly not refugees because that sort of implied some sort of disconnect. There was an interesting bunch of people that were quite angry about the term refugees. I, I used it myself when I got there and I got quite the chiding. So... Mm -hmm. But but well in in the end they were sort of treated like refugees in that sense by by the rest of the American society. I mean at least that was one of the pressures I had. Yeah, I would totally agree with you on that. So it would be an, it would be very apt to actually call these people refugees simply because if you look at the treatment and you look at how they've been shuffled around and you look at how people have rejected them and you I mean certainly they there's been some acceptance there's been a lot of really good work by lots of really good people doing really good things helping out the displaced persons from Hurricane Katrina there have also been a lot of people that have been real bitter about it and not really interested in helping and there have been a lot of people that uh, that just their attitude towards the whole thing is pretty disturbingly depressing so so you were heading towards this Astrodome to install a radio station there wanted to try helping um, setting up an information infrastructure for these people, right? Right. So essentially what happened, uh, I was working as a programmer in San Francisco at the time, and uh, my company uh, laid everybody off, which was very fortunate because as uh, everyone had been laid off, Hurricane Katrina hit, and when Hurricane Katrina hit, um, all of a sudden I realized that I was totally free to go and do anything that I wanted to, and I had to, I had a little bit uh, I had a little bit of time now that I had been laid off, so I made a phone call to Shani Jardin from Boing Boing, uh, and I said, you know, uh, here's a list of my skills, and I told her like a list of my skills, and I was like, Shani, if you know someone that's going there, if you know someone that needs a photographer or like a network engineer or someone who can write about the experiences that they're having, 
I'm totally able to fund my trip to go down there. You know, I got a nice severance from my job. I want to go and help out any way that I can. So if you know anyone, just let me know. She tells me, you know, I do know someone actually, this guy Joel Johnson from Gizmodo. He's going to go down there. I'll put you two in touch. So, I don't know, not, not more than a couple of hours later, we had basically made some ad hoc plans to meet up in Houston, and about 48 hours later, I had a plane ticket, and not too, like, I think the following Monday, that all started on a Friday, the following Monday, I uh, was in Houston, I believe, and uh, meeting Joel Johnson at the airport, and pretty much from there, we went and immediately hooked up with the indie media people in uh, Houston. And uh, we started working with a local radio station called Austin Airwaves that uh, had uh, traveled to Houston. And um, we started working with them and building technology and talking uh, about the infrastructure that was needed and helping them to um, basically figure out anything that they needed. And also blogging about it, documenting it, writing about it, telling these stories as they were happening, the, the, the hurdles that people had to go through just to help these other people. And uh, eventually we ended up with the... Um, the bureaucracy blocking us from setting up this radio station. The people that were originally uh, in Houston um, were working with Prometheus Radio, and we were working with Prometheus Radio. Um, That's radio station. Um, they are um, a group of people that helps uh, to build low-power FM and lobbies for low-power FM stations in the United States, and they do a whole lot more. Uh, if you wanted to learn how to build uh, a radio transmitter, you can go to their website and you can find this information. If you want to find out about legal issues, you can talk to them. They're just overall like the real awesome radio people in the United States. And they were advising... Uh, all the people in Houston, like what uh, what we could do for the radio station, they they helped get uh, like the FCC permits arranged. But then when we tried to get the station set up inside of the actual dome, we ran into a lot of problems. Um, namely, they told us we had to get 10,000 radios before we would be allowed to start transmitting. Which you got then? And uh, we made a call out through uh, Boing Boing and several other places and. That was, that, yeah, that deal was done in a day, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. It was done extremely quickly. Um, and when we said, okay, we can bring you 10,000 radios, they said, well, that's n they, they'd be able to tune the radios to something else, right? And we said, well, of course. And he's like, well, what a, freedom of the dial. Freedom of the dial? What do you mean? It's like, well, what if they were to listen to rap music? That could incite violence. Now, racial stereotypes aside, and the ridiculousness of such statements, just... It's so unbelievable. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so basically, this radio station, which seems like a, a totally reasonable thing. You set up a radio station, you, you help you know, build morale of people whose entire lives have been destroyed. Uh, you tell them information about loved ones that have been lost or found, uh, information that's absolutely necessary. Um, instead of having to hear it over like a big uh, loudspeaker all day long, people turn on their own little radios, they tune in for what they need to hear when they want to hear it, they sort of have a little bit of you know, control, they have another possession, it helps them out, it allows them to really connect back a little bit more as compared to just basically being inside of uh, a building and being told what to do all the time and having to like listen to like you know, speakers 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I think the loneliness is probably one of the hardest parts that you have to suffer from in such a situation. I mean, just being away from all your contacts, maybe all your friends already died or, uh, or at least you don't know uh, was 
probably one of the, the things that people just didn't know what what didn't know what 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 was happening to them, why it was happening to them. They didn't even know the amount of damage that was actually occurring because they were far away from their homes, far away from anybody who could tell them anything. I think that's totally drastic situation everybody's been in. Definitely, I and but uh, it it would be more a, a level of being. Um, alone and uncomfortable you know simply because the type of loneliness that you would have in that situation i imagine is probably losing your particular community that you're accustomed to but then you're shoved into uh, uh an area where you basically have no privacy anymore the people that were living in the astrodome they were like people that were sitting in the astrodome um in the bleachers like looking in as if it was like some sort of game and in the middle of the bleachers is like bed after bed after bed after bed after bed no private space whatsoever lights on lights on during the day um and i wasn't in there you know after you know the curfew or whatever but the the treatment that i heard of people when they would come inside um, some people were stopped from going in um apparently like if they wanted to go out on this this is a perfect example of the ridiculously uh puritan american attitude that really frustrates me these people lose their house they have uh, lost everything they own And they're in Houston. They're in a city that is functioning again. Um, and some people went out and they did something that someone else could consider immoral behavior. I think someone went out to like a strip club or to a bar, which now, while I'm not really, uh, you know, interested in going to a strip club or a bar, if I don't know, say my girlfriend had died in a flood or uh, my house had been destroyed and everything I owned, maybe I would be interested in perhaps relaxing or Just thinking something. about something totally different. Exactly. Just going out and doing something else. So these people, when they did that, they came back to the gates and sometimes they would be denied entry. Now, if someone was 10 or 20 minutes past 9 or 10 o'clock at night, I forget exactly what time they, arbitrary time they set, then if they had been buying groceries for their family, they'd be let back in. But otherwise, they'd be denied entry until the next day. I mean, because... For some reason, like, why why should they be out doing this thing? So it's like all of a sudden, these people, their lives were not only turned totally upside down, they were being uh, they were being policed, like, morally and ethically and, and, like, what they can do to relieve their own stress. And and then people, you know, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not this is all right. They were just denied humane treatment at all. I mean... I mean, there, there's certainly... I, I don't want to portray it as that there weren't people doing humane things and helping them out, but... That kind of that kind of judgment is, I mean, the reasons behind it were something like, well, people that had been drinking were rowdy and people were trying to sleep inside. But it's like, I think maybe that that... Judging I, the people by the habits and not by the situation. Yeah, that's really a problem. Oh, my God. And then there, was this, <coughs> there were lots of people being searched uh, when they would uh, come in. Um, they would have them pat... Um, the security would pat them down before they could enter the dome. So they couldn't bring in... Uh, weapons or contraband or whatever. So these people, every single one of them, were being treated, in effect, like they were uh, in sort of like a sort of semi-prison environment in certain respects. Like they had the ability to leave, um, and sometimes they could come back in unless it was too late and they had been doing something immoral. Um, but, uh, and I say immoral and you know, in California, finger quotes there. But um, essentially they, you know, some one guy told me... Um, that he had um, tried to come back in and they had like strip searched him and they had just given him like a lot of attitude and you know like they'd like pushed him up against the wall and like you know asked him all sorts of questions and 
this is a guy who's just trying to go back inside so he can go to bed and it's like that kind of situation just is appalling to me there was the time when I was well I already told you uh, that I have been contacting you then by instant messaging it was just saying like I was reading about that going to Astrodome, good luck, something. And then we were getting back to me. So you saw me online. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, a couple of days later, you you were moving from Houston to New Orleans directly. What was the uh, main reason to, to do that? Well, there were a couple of things. I had, uh, <laughs> at the time, I had told my... <laughs> Uh, I told my then fiance that I was not going into New Orleans. And at the time, I didn't think I was going to be going into New Orleans. Uh, people I was working with in Houston had a lot of other things they needed to get done. And essentially what ended up happening is it seemed like it was a dead end with the bureaucrats in Houston. They were not, they were not getting things done. Um, they were standing in the way of everyone trying to help and just overall being a big pain in the ass. And Did so that radio set station ever get set up? It did. Eventually, after we were in New Orleans, um, it was actually set up. Uh, and it But after a week or so, or like longer? Yeah, basically, it was up for just a couple of days. And then after the couple of days that it was up, they actually got all of the people, all of the you know displaced persons or refugees or whatever, they made them leave because there was going to be a sports game at the station, oh. a stadium. So important. they had to make them move out. <clears throat> right, very important. Um, so with that said, um, they basically... Uh, I I decided that it just Joel and I both decided that it was not a worthwhile uh, time use there because it was expensive for both of us to be there. We had rented a van and we decided that that wasn't like the best use uh, of our time. And I just out of the blue got a phone call from someone in New Orleans that I had worked with previously before. And he said, we need someone to bring us the Internet. We need someone to bring us the internet. We need computers. We need technical help. We need a communications team. Jake, can you bottom line a communications team? And I said, absolutely. And so we went to New Orleans. So you were asking for for stuff, for computers, for technology of all kinds of things. Uh, via Boing Boing, I guess, as well on your blog it was, right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, did you get anything Uh, AMD actually donated a bunch of uh, strange embedded Windows devices, which we didn't have a lot of time to, ha to hack to put uh, Linux on it because we were busy doing other things. But uh, we uh, were probably better off because the FEMA website wasn't so great for uh, anything but Internet Explorer anyway. Um, but essentially we had, uh, we had those, uh, we had people that brought us water. Um, we, a really important thing before going into a disaster area, uh, Houston isn't so much a disaster area as it was, uh, well, I mean, other than being Houston, it's just like a very, <laughs> you know, and it's a nice place. Um, but it's, it's very, you know, it's very much like, um, at that point it was just filled with a lot of people that were otherwise not normally there. So it's not really a disaster area. It's just sort of like a different vibe than it was before um, but before going into New Orleans we wanted to stop in Baton Rouge um, for the place to stay um, because of the checkpoints and because of uh, the curfews but we also had to buy all of our own food all of our own water we needed gas and we had oh I don't know wow 100 bucks worth of Red Bull <laughs> Baton Rouge is isn't it that the the capital of the region isn't it like no is it uh You know, to be honest, I'm not sure. I but, but, but no, but it was like sort of the no, it was the temporary capital in a way because everything was more or less moved out of New Orleans, 
Was the mayor going to Baton Rouge? There were uh, a lot of uh, the people in the region um, who had gone to Baton Rouge, but there were a lot of people that had actually gone further, uh, further away than that. But Baton Rouge was completely overrun with all of the people that had uh, the ability to go and stay there. Like all the hotels were filled up. And if you were to go, say, shopping in, uh, what do you call it, the Walmart there or... There's some other really big stores. They're just filled with people just basically buying their whole life all over again. Um, and we went there one night just to stay the night with a very nice guy um, uh, who just reading the blog said, yeah, I have a couch you can come sleep on and I have internet access so you can use it. And so went there first and uh, we brought everything with us. So you made all your, all your stops All the people who were helping you were basically coming to you because of your internet communication? Everything, yeah. So, in the end, what, what did you have on board when you were entering New Orleans? Uh, we had one very large white rental van um, with a um, couple different pieces of paper printed out. We had uh, some press passes that we had made in Houston um, that were legitimate press passes for a legitimate radio station, the Austin Airwaves. Uh, we had uh, food, um, like everything from peanut butter and honey and bread to uh, cereal and soy milk. And uh, we had some gas. We had Red Bull. We had blankets. We had some of those AMD computers. We had uh, EVDO equipment. We had some other laptops. We had some radio scanners, some telephone line equipment, um, some telephones, um, tons of 802.11b gear. Um, lots of blank CDs, just basically anything we could um, bring with us uh, in order to do the work we were going to do. So was there still a, a working wireless LAN system in New Orleans? Um, no, there there was no... Well, we did find some wireless LANs uh, in New Orleans, but there was nothing that was particularly usable. So what we did is we brought uh, EVDO cards, which are 3G uh, CDMA, um, we brought that with us. Uh, Joel had it, one actually sponsored by Gizmodo. Um, brought that uh, with us, uh, and we shared out uh, the Wi-Fi from his Mac using EVDO. So from the very first moment we got there, all of the journalists that we had met, sort of like uh, the GNN, um, uh, Guerrilla News Network uh, people, and different uh, European journalists that were staying in the area where we were in New Orleans, Uh, all of a sudden, we all had internet access, whereas before we didn't. Uh, and the EVDO is not particularly fast. It's like a dual-channel ISDN speed, but that's so much faster than no internet at all that it was really great. And then sharing that over Wi-Fi wasn't bad as long as people weren't sending lots and lots of... So EVDO was like a, a system that was working there before or was it like set up after, after the catastrophe hit? Um, well, at first we were not sure if we had been put on a, a portable cell station or if it was actually uh, the um, Verizon uh, uh, CDMA towers that may have survived the storm. But uh, it turns out that actually the EVDO infrastructure survived Hurricane Katrina entirely. Um, so this was available before the storm and it was available after the storm and it just worked. So it was amazing. So, um, where have you been heading to? Have you been heading directly to the center, the flooded areas in New Orleans? Well, when we first came in, we came into an area called Algiers. 
Um, and the way that we did it was we, we, we looked at Google Maps because Google Maps had just published satellite photos of the uh, affected areas in Louisiana. That special layer they put on top. Yeah. It only took them, I don't know, five days to do that? Yeah. Something like this, Something. a week? That was totally amazing. I mean, they have been buying in any satellite imagery that was coming from that area in these days. They uh, were just extending their Google Maps interface to add another layer. And I used that very much to track people who were like saying they were doing something here, something there. It's very impressive. And it's, still, it's still online, isn't it? I, I think it's still online. So you could actually see the levees being where they were breaking and, and all the disaster was totally apparent. That's yet another interesting experience I had on the on the other side of the Atlantic watching all this. So I, I had various sources. First of all, I was uh, was reading blogs, of course, like Boing Boing and other um, Katrina-related blogs that sort of popped out, uh, popped up then. Uh, <clears throat> very interesting also was the Crooks and Liars uh, weblog. Do you know that? Yeah. They are... Um, They were very busy publishing um, certain well recordings from TV. So they were continuously following the media, reporting on it, and everything that was online was sort of interesting. They encoded it immediately, both in Windows Media and in, in QuickTime format as well. It was amazing. So I got a, a, a pre-filtered real-time stream of, of media reporting on this event, which was totally awesome. And... Um, so I sort of managed to be on the same level of information probably as everybody in, in the US. Of course, not as much, but I was pretty close, I got, I think. So um, I, I don't really recall. How did we get together then? Uh, you, you were online then with this e-video mm -hmm. thingy in Algier, and then you got back to me, right? Yep, exactly. Um, uh, when we were in Algiers, um We didn't actually go into the city, I don't think, until the next day. Uh, so, well, we should explain. Algier is a uh, a part of New Orleans. Yes. That's south of the river, so it wasn't affected by the floods. Right. So Algiers is the part of New Orleans that didn't flood, and it's sort of like uh, any other quarter. You have like uh, um, you have the French Quarter, and you have Algiers. Um, a lot of people mistook the fact that Algiers um, was like a different city, <clears throat> but that's not actually. Case Algiers is this section of New Orleans, um, and it's also the section of New Orleans that was extremely easy to get into. That there were like five different roads that you could get into, so you didn't have to worry about military checkpoints, um, which was basically meant as long as you arrived before curfew, you could get into Algiers. And then using Algiers, you could use that as a jumping off point um, and to get into the city different ways. So that's what we used it for as well. So, where were you heading for? Well, um, One of the first days that I went into the city with some of the other reporters, um, I went into the French Quarter, and I also just drove around. We went around to, like, uh, the lower ninth areas, trying to go into the different wards, um, basically just driving around the city. And it's sort of driving around New Orleans was actually really reminiscent of when I was driving through Iraq, like just seeing like buildings that were totally wasted away i mean in in, in he also took a lot of photos there yeah i took a, i took a lot a lot of photos there and i and i put them all on Flickr as well um but it was it was just 
absolutely astounding to me how destroyed parts of the city were. And, they, and, and people said this over and over again. It's like the hurricane really missed New Orleans. It's, it didn't even... What, what was so destructive to most of New Orleans wasn't just the hurricane. It was the aftermath of the hurricane. It was the people and how the people treated each other and the response to the hurricane and what ends up happening after this disaster. And the, the human disaster was even worse than the natural disaster. And and so in, in driving around it, there are certainly parts that are flooded. There are houses that are burned down and there's trees that are fallen and everything is just absolute mess. Totally like it's like you just walked into some really bad sci-fi zombie movie or something and there's certain parts of the city they had like demort codes uh, on the doors and other parts of the city they didn't have demort codes and then you would see like a light on what kind of codes are this uh, a demort code is the it's the uh, fema disaster management uh, mortuary team i forget exactly what the acronym is but basically uh it's an x and in each uh different quad so you have four quadrants you have this um the bottom quadrant of the x tells you how many dead bodies or how many live bodies or how many you know people when the thing was searched like you have the date and you have the time that it was searched um and you have basically if you have one line it means someone's in the building if you have both lines they've done the search and then it would tell you things so like w the first day we were there when we rolled in there were uh we found a, a nursing home and the demort code said seven dead bodies inside i believe and it was at this point where we were you know this is the one of the first things that we saw there and when we see this the police see us And we pull up, and we're with some very credible journalists. And these journalists show them their, you know, this is our, like, you know, you know, our official United States press card. And the police just stand in front of our windows and say, like, this isn't for you to see. And it's just everywhere, like, in it was, it was similar in Houston. Um, I met this uh, Polish uh, press agent who, again, was he was he has House of Representative uh, ID card. He said the the censorship here is amazing. This reminds me of what it was like in Poland um, dealing with the USSR. It's just crazy to me. <clears throat> And so again, seeing this in New Orleans, it was very consistent. Like trying to hide the bad news, the fact that there were seven elderly people that died inside of. Uh, inside of a nursing home is not actually that out of hand if you think about it, the scale of this disaster. But what surprised, what really surprised me was just the, the police response to a lot of the media was, why would you want to show something like this? Why would you want uh, to like bring this kind of negative thing to the public zeitgeist? And it was amazing to me because that's the exact opposite approach that I would want to take. Like, why would you want to hide something like that? Something terrible has, has happened. This tragedy has befallen these people and we want to, we want to not disgrace their memory that they would just die and so needlessly. And then when they do die so needlessly, the police wanted to, to hide it, to not show it. Of course, that failed miserably and everyone saw these photos. But just the, the sheer fact somehow like hiding it would take away the shame of the failure of the United States government and the natural disaster that no one was responsible for. I mean, this is just the unfortunate circumstances. But the parts that weren't unfortunate circumstances but were like terrible planning and absolutely like just asinine ignoring of people in desperate need of help hiding that is not going to do any good and that's a lot of that 
people tried to make that happen all the time. It's just ridiculous and totally disgraceful to the people that died. Yeah, lack of freedom of information at that point as well. Um, so you arrived in Algeria and you um, met in, met this guy. Uh, what was his name again? Malik this Rahim. Act yeah, this, that Islamic uh, activist. Well, can you say something about him? He was a very impressive man uh, from what I read. Yeah, Malik Rahim... Uh, What he did in Algiers is absolutely amazing. And basically, um, as soon as the hurricane hit New Orleans, um, everything really just went off the hook, so to speak. And there was no there was no law and order at all. And people needed food, people needed water, people needed medical attention. And then there was a lot of racial tension. And this is the South in America. So... This is not so different to have racial tension, but the racial tension was uh, on a whole new level. The stakes were much higher. Um, people, people were definitely more violent. Um, one of the, the dead bodies that I saw in New Orleans um, was in Algiers, not two blocks from Malik's house. And this is an area, again, of New Orleans that didn't flood. So why is there a dead body there? I mean, right, these, these questions, of course... He didn't have shoes on either, which in the bottom of his feet weren't dirty, so that led... Could have been related to the hurricane, or is it impossible? I suppose it could be related to the hurricane, but I don't know if it was related to the wind and the rain of the hurricane, or if it was related to the aftermath of the hurricane. But there were people in this neighborhood that were driving around in trucks with guns, uh, like all-white posses of people... Um, and I'm not trying to single out the fact that they were white. This is, this is the stories that I heard directly from people I came to know and to trust. But they said basically, you know, all white, uh, you know, truckfuls of people with rifles saying to people of color, you know, get out of this neighborhood or what are you doing in this neighborhood? Explain yourself, get on the ground, you know, and pointing their guns at them. I mean, it's very serious racial tensions. So what Malik Rahim did was really amazing. He basically brought the people of the neighborhood together. He started distributing food. He started helping out with medicine. He started putting together a medical clinic. He started making calls and bringing more people in. And that was how he ended up bringing myself and Joel in. Um, he had uh, brought in someone previously before who will remain nameless. And they had called us to bring us in. And it was through this like radical grassroots organizing, he was basically able to stop serious uh, acts of violence. He was able to organize the community to report back when these types of things started happening. He was able to bring in uh, medical uh, people from all over the United States when they needed to come in. He was able to bring in food, not bombs, so that there was food coming in for people who needed it. And it was being cooked, you know, the food, not bombs brought an entire kitchen full of food. Um, a mobile kitchen for cooking and it was basically because of this man he lent out his house and uh, his neighbor lent out his house and we were able to build a media center there so that we had uh, something like 12 computers um, that people could register with FEMA people could write in their blogs people could uh, do their own personal news reporting and just really like without this man none of this would have happened this community would have been a desolate wasteland And while there were certainly certain um, people in the neighborhood that were surviving without his help, they certainly survived a lot better with his help. And there are probably people that would not have survived if he had not been there. A lot of the people that stayed, these people were so poor 
that they didn't have cars, which is not really, I mean, to me, I, I don't own a car, so that's not a big deal. But these people are also very sick. A lot of these people, um, there was a woman uh, who was taking care of her husband. They didn't have a car. No bus ever came for them to evacuate them. And her husband had gangrene in his legs. Um, there were people that were just so sick um, physically that they couldn't leave because they were very old, the elderly people, or they didn't have anywhere to go. I mean, where do you go when all you have your whole life is this neighborhood and now you hear your neighborhood's going to be destroyed and they didn't have the, you know, just the pocket money to, to roll up to another town, you know, 100, 200, 300 miles away. And in the end, they probably, some of them even didn't believe what was told them that they had, well, that everything's going to be destroyed. Sure. I mean, I live in San Francisco, right? I mean, the last big earthquake was in... The really, really big earthquake that destroyed the city was 1906. Then there was the Loma Prieta quake. But if someone told me that there was going to be a really big earthquake in San Francisco, I've had earthquakes for my whole life. I remember the Loma Prieta quake. I mean, I wouldn't just up and get out of San Francisco and drive 700 miles away with everything that I owned. I just, it just, it's not realistic. And, and that doesn't scale either because of every single person that's in the city did that, no one would get out, and then they would all die on the bridges and in their cars when such a big earthquake actually did happen. So, I mean, a lot of these people also, they didn't know what was going on. Uh, when I left New Orleans, I sat on uh, an airplane. The only way that I could get out of New Orleans before Hurricane Rita hit was by upgrading my plane ticket um, uh, to a first-class ticket for like an extra $100. I've never flown first-class in my whole life, and after this experience, I don't think I ever want to sit next to someone in first-class again. But uh, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty bad. But basically, this, this, uh, this woman um, said, I, I don't understand why... Why these people didn't leave? I mean, I heard on the television, the you know, the mayor was gonna send around buses for everybody that didn't have a way out, and everybody should get out, and it, you know, it's the end is near, and all this stuff. And I got in my car and I drove to my summer home in Georgia, and you know, of course, she's sitting in first class in this airplane. It's like one of the last airplanes that's gonna leave New Orleans before um, before the next hurricane is going to hit. And it's like uh, this total disconnect. These people don't have a television. There were barely any computers on the block. When we brought in food, water, computers, and internet access, we were some of the first people in the area to, to really, to for most of the people in this area, these were some of the first computers they'd ever used. People registering for FEMA that had never touched a keyboard in their life. And so when this woman's sitting here from her position of privilege in first class telling me this, I just... It, it was so infuriating to me because this disconnect that she had there about being able to care. I mean, this she did. I, she obviously never set foot in Algiers. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you at at the at the congress at the twenty second Carl's Communication Congress. Uh, you gave a talk about this story. We basically were reflecting on that in the last half hour. How? Did you well? How what was your impression? How this was received? Because I found it a very, very personal, very emotional talk. Did you get any responses to that? I I, I get a lot of responses when I talk about it. Um, I, I've talked about it at Webzine um, 2005 also. Um, right after I had gotten back from 
New Orleans. Um, they had invited me to be their keynote speaker and or their one of their featured speakers. I think they had two. Um, you know, and they it was put on by a really awesome guy, uh, many really awesome guys and gals actually. Uh, one of which being uh, Eddie Codell, uh, Eddie.com, very awesome guy, and uh, he. He brought me there um, and asked me to speak for the same reason I think you did. Basically, trying to get people to relate to this, to understand it, and to inspire people. And I got a very similar response uh, at the CCC as I did at Webzine. Basically, people came up to me after the talk and a lot of them apologized for what happened or like said they were sorry for what happened to my father, which is... To me, I think it's kind of an awkward situation because I appreciate their sympathy, but it's 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 more important to me that they don't contribute to that. It was like a lot of people said they were very they were very sad about it, but then like they'll see someone that's like obviously like a destitute homeless person in the street, and then like not give them change when snow is like falling on them and they're like freezing and dying. So it's it's weird for me to like hear those kinds of comments from people. But then there are certain people that came up to me after uh, I gave this talk at the Congress. It's like, basically, what should I do with my life? How can I make a difference in the world? And like, well, uh, you know, that's a really good question. Like, I don't have the entire answer. This, this, is, this is my will. This is what I was doing. You have to go and find your own. And I sat down and I talked with a couple of people about what they were doing. Some people asked me for, like, advice in driving in third world countries. Like, what do you do when you're driving down the road in New Orleans and you see a checkpoint? How do you approach that situation? Or what do you do when you... When there are no laws, how do you act? How do you defend yourself? And they just asked me more in-depth questions than I could really get into. But there were a lot of people that really, that just thanked me because they felt inspired to go and do something else. And uh, I was, I'm personally touched by the fact that people can care because it seems like in my experience, there are a lot of people that don't care and that seem to have the ability to not care even when it's so obvious that they need to. So the feedback was just, it was amazing. The people, they really like, they liked it and they really listened and they were affected by it. It touched me. Yeah, it touched me, it touched me as well. And it was my impression that, that, that many people were, were really, really touched by it, just by the, the reaction at the end of it. So everybody was sort of taking some extra time before standing up and going. It was very interesting to see. Um, although this event is so full of things going on and many interesting things uh, drawing you just to the next place next in the next minute so um <clears throat> okay i think uh, i think we're more or less uh ending the uh coming to to the end of uh, uh this interview here but um i'd like to ask you again about the the overall experience you had at the at the congress itself apart from your talk i mean you've probably seen other talks going on if you've seen things and you've been here the first time so it's just an impression well i think this is probably the best uh conference i've ever been to i mean i'm a little biased because i really like berlin and it's really fun to practice speaking german with uh native speakers but uh everyone was really warm and very like Uh, just basically everyone was very involved with each other instead of being really self-involved. It was great. There was a real sense of community. There was real gender balance, which is really different, especially for like a technological conference, like comparing it to something like DEF CON in the United States. It's, it's 
it's not, there's no comparison. It was just leaps and bounds above anything I had ever experienced before. I think the closest that I've experienced is probably um, Hope or Next 5 Minutes. Uh, Emmanuel Goldstein's Hope is a really solid conference, and Next 5 Minutes is also very nice. Uh, and then it's a lot, a lot of discussion about media and politics with some technology involved, where 2600's uh, Hope was a lot like... Uh, uh, technology with some politics involved in the Chaos uh, Communications Congress is is great because it's basically the things I liked about Next 5 Minutes and the things I liked about Hope and some of the things I liked about DEF CON all put together in a really great European city. And it was, you know, it's, aff- it's affordable. The talks were really solidly put together. The people uh, that were giving the talks, you could just sit down and talk to them right after they were done with their with their uh, with their lectures the um, internal decked phone system was like brilliantly uh, pulled off the fact that everywhere you go instead of having to hack phone systems to make free phone calls or something like this there were free phones everywhere you could call everywhere in the world already um, I thought it was incredibly brilliant that the wireless and the wired network was always working 10 gigabit uplink with real IP addresses with a class B, that was great. It was absolutely, I mean, you just don't, you don't even see that at other conferences. And it's, it was awesome. And I can't wait to come back next year. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and thank you very much for this um, very intensive, very personal interview, um, which is uh, the last interview now. The Congress is over. And um, yeah, I'm pretty happy about how everything worked out and uh, especially about who came and, and, and all the reactions. I will definitely need another weeks to just collect what, what was actually happening. So thanks very much, Jacob. And um, yeah, and thanks to all you listening to this and see you soon and goodbye. <laughs>